0: Hello and welcome to this Tuesday edition of Back to the Bible. Today we are into day 2 of our current series, Life Lessons from David, the man who would be king, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. In today's message we look at 1 Samuel chapter 16 as we learn how God chooses our calling. Before we get into today's study, a reminder that our 2024 calendar is available in Mandeville at Forever Young, located in the Manchester Shopping Centre, and of course also from our office here in Hagley Park Plaza, for your contribution of $700 each. Now, let's get ready as we go back to
1: the Bible. One of the things Christians often struggle with is the will of God. Not long ago, I preached in a church in which, on that given Sunday, they were selecting a new deacon. The church had approved a group of people, placed their names in a bag, and then one of the leaders put his hand in the bag, pulled out a name at random, and then announced, the Lord has chosen, and then he read the name on the paper. You know, I've thought about that incident since. On the one hand, there's biblical precedence for this. However, the Urim and Thummim were used in the Old Testament, it seems related to the idea of drawing lots. If God is meticulously sovereign, and if, as Proverbs 16.33 insists, the lot is cast into the lap, and its every decision is from the Lord, then what we might think of as a random pick out of a bag is not luck at all. Truly, the name picked from that bag was from the Lord. The Lord had indeed chosen the man on that given Sunday. I don't doubt it. But on the other hand, the New Testament never commands such an approach. First Timothy and Titus contain a detailed list of leadership credentials to be used to discern leadership in a church, and no mention is made of drawing lots. As far as we know, the New Testament church did not draw lots to ascertain who had been chosen to lead. Rather, they painstakingly poured over the character of every person. Now, the reason I mention this incident is not to pass judgment upon the process, not one way or the other. No, I mention this because for many of us, the will of God and the practical decisions of life is a mystery. It's not just in the area of church leadership, but there are a host of practical decisions we make every day, and not a few of us have asked whether the decision we've made really is what God intended. How much more when we consider the really big decisions in life that might direct the course of our lives we often struggle. What is God's will in this? Most obedient Christians fall into one of two categories. First, there are those who simply make choices as wisely as they can and say, if God wants to redirect me, he is more than capable of doing so. I will act for his glory and he is always free to intervene and redirect me if he wills. But there are those who look for some kind of guidance and direction in advance. Lord, they say, direct me in some fashion by showing me what I am to do. But many of us have wondered why God doesn't write out some things in the sky for us, especially when we're making choices that determine our life's mission. Wouldn't that make things easier? You know, we're studying the life of David and his rise to becoming Israel's king, and we will notice that he makes no choice regarding his life's mission. He is chosen by God straight up. He does not ask to become king, nor does he go through a process of discerning it. Samuel simply shows up at his house and announces God's intention regarding his life. Some of us wish it were so with us. But in most cases, that's not how we've experienced life at all. And yet, as different as David's experience is from ours, there is so much to learn from what happened to him that can be directly applied to us. We're studying 1 Samuel 14 to 31 and tracing David's rise to the kingship and asking ourselves, what are the principles in his life that can be applied to those of us who want to live a life of significance? We want our lives to count. I believe that David's rise to the kingdom has something to say to us who seek to discover God's blueprint for our lives. Today, let's discover David's call like Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or John the Baptist. David had a very specific call from God. Let's read 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, as we have noticed, David had no part in the horrible, tragic turn of direction in Saul's life. But what Saul did and chose, and how he disobeyed God, would affect David greatly. Because of Saul's refusal to obey God fully, God had rejected him. Before Samuel sets out to look for Saul's replacement, he grieves. Samuel clearly loves Saul, and his turn of events brings an emotional response in him. But in his deep grief, God would remind him not to become paralyzed. He must act for the glory of God and the good of Israel. The time had come for a new king to be chosen. And although Samuel has no idea who that might be, God has already chosen his man. It is David. But neither Samuel nor David knows God's intention. In some ways, we can apply that to our lives. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. If you and I think about that for a moment... We should be able to see that God is able to change and direct the course of our lives at any moment. And that was about to happen to David. He's the youngest in the family, and as we will see, that places him outside the most important family functions in his home. But God has plans for him. And so, at God's direction, Samuel is told to visit Bethlehem. And in specific, he is to go to the house of a man named Jesse. And those of us who know our Bible well will recognize that Jesse is the grandson of the very famous Ruth and Boaz from the book of Ruth. Their righteous example in Israel's dark ages no doubt has transformed the lives of the people in Bethlehem. Their example would have also left a godly legacy in their family, and Jesse inherits what they left behind. Perhaps Samuel knew of Jesse. It seems likely, for he does not ask the Lord who Jesse is. But on the other hand, if he knew Jesse, he did not know his family, for he seems unaware of how many children Jesse has or what they look like. However, one thing is clear. Samuel has not been thinking about Jesse or contemplating whether someone in that family would make a good replacement for Saul. Rather, he's grieving the loss of Saul. But when the word comes, Samuel hesitates not out of disobedience, but out of fear, and the thought that he might not be able to pull this off. Let's continue to read. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. You know, from this passage, we are given our first glimpse of what Saul is progressively becoming, and what Samuel, in alarm, must have been seeing. Saul is slowly becoming unstable. In the future, he will attempt to kill anyone who stands in the way of his kingship. In the future, and we will read about that in chapter 22, in a city between Jerusalem and Gibeah, it's a small town called Nob, Saul will murder all of its priests because they gave David bread when he came by. Saul will become not only irrational, he will become a despot that Israel fears. He will become homicidal. Those days have not yet come, but Samuel knows that Saul is becoming a dangerous man. So let's read verses 2 and 3. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare for you. And some have been troubled by this, that God is telling Samuel to travel to Bethlehem with false motives. But Samuel's not lying. He is, however, concealing his true purpose. Remember that Samuel is a Levitical judge, and as such, he is authorized by the law of Moses to offer a sacrificial animal in any city to atone for an unsolved murder in that region. There may have been such a case in Bethlehem, we're not told, but clearly... He is going to perform this action as a part of his duties as both a prophet and a priest. No one would be suspicious. But for some reason, we don't know why, his coming raises concerns. Verse 4 says, The elders of the city came out to meet him trembling and saying, Do you come peaceably? We're not told why they're concerned, and if I'm right, and there was an unsolved murder in Bethlehem. And remember, Bethlehem at that time would have been a tiny little town. It may have been likely that someone knew something, and they might have been concerned that the prophet would announce their sins. Perhaps since in the last chapter, Samuel himself put Agag, the king of the Amalekites, to death, and loudly announced God's displeasure with Saul, that these citizens of Bethlehem wondered if the prophet would announce God's displeasure with them. And so as Samuel came, they no doubt wondered why this national figure was coming to their small town. Of course, Samuel is not there to investigate a local crime or to speak to the elders of the town. He's there to find the next king of Israel, but no one knows. And so Samuel assures them all is fine. A ceremony is invoked, and animals are sacrificed, and Jesse and his sons, with the exception of David, who is left in the field to care for the sheep, are consecrated. That is, they make themselves ritually clean for the sacrifice that the great prophet will offer in the city. What happens next might seem confusing. Samuel calls all of Jesse's sons to stand before him. Does Jesse know what Samuel is up to? Well, probably not. But all seven sons are presented to Samuel in order of their birth. This would have been customary since the oldest would inherit the major portion of his father's estate and the remaining sons would divide up what was left over. The birth order is the order of significance in the family. And as the oldest stands before Samuel, Samuel simply assumes this is the one. His culture informs his choice. Furthermore, the oldest is tall, handsome, and bears all the confidence of the leader of that family. But Samuel will not act until God directs him, and yet he thinks God's chosen is before him. He's looking at him. But what God says next tells us, that is, it tells you and I, who want our lives to count for something in God's purposes, what is the most important thing in coming to terms with God's plan for our lives. Stay with me as we come back.
0: This is Back to the Bible, Bible teaching you can trust. Well, believe it or not, the year is fast coming to a close, and we here at Back to the Bible couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement, prayers, and support we've received from so many gracious ministry friends across the island, and indeed around the world. And I'm so looking forward to what God has in store for us in 2024.
1: Oh, me too, Nigel. Because God's Word really does ignite hearts and change lives. And that's what we're all about here at Back to the Bible. But friends, we depend on your generous giving to keep this Bible teaching ministry thriving. That's
0: right. As a donor-supported ministry, we rely on the generosity of listeners like you ...to keep us on air and online, especially as we come to the end of another year. So friends, we need your
1: help, and now's the time. Please consider joining our efforts here in Jamaica as a faith partner. Your gift of any amount will have a huge impact. So prayerfully decide what you might give. Donations can be made
0: via online bank transfer or in-bank deposit... Our account is with the Halfway Tree Branch of the Bank of Nova Scotia. Current account number 428310. That's current account number 428310 at the Halfway Tree Branch of Scotia Bank and it's a business account in the name of Back to the Bible. Checks can be sent to us via mail to Back to the Bible, box 123, Kingston 10, Jamaica. Please make checks payable to Back to the Bible. And of course, you can always come by our office in Hagley Park Plaza to drop off your donation or make your contribution via our point of sale machine with your credit or debit card. Now as we prepare to get Back to the Bible, You know, at some point we all have struggled to make sense of what God's will is for each of our own lives. This is nothing new, but I think there's much to apply when we examine how God directed the steps of Samuel in what would eventually lead to his anointing of David. Just like in the lives of Saul and David, God has plans for us that we may not know about Let's rejoin Bible teacher John Newfeld as he shares about how God chose David and much more.
1: God tells Samuel, not that Eliab, the oldest of Jesse's sons, is not the one. He tells Samuel in verse 7 that he has rejected Eliab. It's almost as if God has looked him over and found him to be substandard. Something is wrong with this man, but what is it? Verse 7 says, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. It's a strong word. God could have said, I've chosen another, but that's not what he says. I have rejected him. And then comes the explanation. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. What can that mean? The heart is an expression of a person's thoughts, his emotions, what he likes, and what he hates. What motivates him to act and what motivates him to refrain from acting. And in that internal place where Eliab's decision-making process was formed, in the place where his affections, where his loves and hates were nurtured, God saw him and rejected him. We see these attitudes later in 1 Samuel 17, when Goliath was mocking the armies of God. Eliab not only takes no action and fails to take any leadership, but he also becomes furious with David. David encourages someone to take action. Eliab is furious with his kid brother and accuses him of presumption and having an evil heart and having poor motives. Eliab plays it safe. Eliab finds strong faith offensive. Eliab fails to see what God is doing in his younger brother's life. Eliab is ready to condemn someone of strong faith. He is no man of faith or confidence in his God. He sees only what's before him, not the purposes of God. Remember, we have said that there are life lessons to be learned from David. Unlike David, we probably won't have a Samuel-like prophet showing up with anointing oil and announcing God's intention for our lives. But like David, God is searching our heart, looking into the issues of our heart. And therefore, our greatest task is not to find out what God wants us to do for the course of a lifetime. But our greatest task is to develop a heart after God, to believe in the might and the power of God. Years later, David would write in Psalm 20, verses 7 to 8, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They, that is, those who trust in chariots and horses, will collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Now, at this time, we do not yet see how David had nurtured the kind of heart that confidently trusted in his God, and how it was that he was not threatened by the circumstances, but rather was overwhelmed by the greatness and might of his God. We do know that already on one occasion while keeping his father's sheep, he had been confronted by a bear and on another occasion by a lion, and on both occasions he had killed a savage predator. It would seem his confidence was in his God. And that's the issue. Rather than worrying about how we can make a mark in life or build some kind of a great legacy for ourselves or by wringing our hands and wondering what God's perfect plan in our lives might be, when we first meet David, we meet a young man who in his heart had nurtured a strong confidence in his God. And so as Jesse's seven sons pass before Samuel, on each occasion the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, not him. And at last, at least so it would seem, all of Jesse's sons have passed by. But Samuel is not deterred. In verse 11, he simply asks, are all your sons here? And with that, Samuel learns of one more David. Out taking care of chores while the rest of them meet with a prophet. He is insignificant. He is not important. And here now is the second lesson. Remember the first, developing a heart after God is far more important than finding your assignment from God and accomplishing something great. The second lesson is simple. Even if you're excluded from important functions, God's plan for your life will not fail. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1 verse 11 that God works all things in accordance to the counsel of his will. The best way to understand that sentence is to think that every event, in some sense, is directed by God. We do well to trust in God rather than to wring our hands that we have been missed by God's plans because of bad timing or someone has excluded us or poor decision-making at the wrong time. You know, confidence in God is just better than anything else. Now, most of us know what happens next. Samuel makes it clear that he will not sit down, that is, he will not eat until the last of Jesse's sons is brought in from the field. And so because of what must have been the awkwardness of it, they quickly send for David and he's brought in. According to 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, we get our first physical description of David. He's ruddy, perhaps his hair is, has a reddish tint to it. He has beautiful eyes, it says, and he's handsome. And all of this, as we have already learned, is incidental. God is looking at the heart. And immediately God speaks to Samuel. Verse 12, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the man who has a holy destiny. And this is where the account is not clear. Does Samuel do this thing in front of everyone else? I mean, I assume he does. And do they understand what he's doing? Do they know that this is a symbol of God's call upon their brother's life to become the king of Israel? I suspect they don't know. But I do suspect they know that God has given their brother an extraordinary calling. Perhaps he will be a prophet like Samuel was. And with that, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David. To all who carefully read 1 Samuel, this sounds eerily familiar. Back in chapter 10, Samuel has gone out to meet the then young Saul, and he is directed by God even as he was directed by God here. Samuel pours a flask of oil on Saul's head, and with that, Samuel tells Saul that the Spirit of the Lord will rush on you, and you will begin to prophesy, and you will be turned into another man. And if you know the story, that's precisely what happened. First Samuel 10 says that God gave Saul another heart, and in that case, it doesn't mean that Saul was converted, only that God confirms in his heart that he has a calling from God to deliver Israel from their enemies as his anointed chosen vessel. And when Samuel anoints David, the same thing that happened to Saul happens to David. God's Spirit rushed on David, setting him aside as God's deliverer from the hand of Israel's enemies and empowering him to be king. And because the two accounts of the anointing of Saul and that of David are so similar we might well ask what it means. After all, Saul is rejected by God, and David will end his life on a high note, trusting in his God all the way to the end. So we have noticed the things to be learned from the choosing of David. We've noticed that the state of our affections, that is, our heart attitude toward God, is far more important than what we do or what God calls us to do. Second, We notice that God will call us even when everyone else may dismiss us. But the third lesson is the most important one. You may follow God's calling for your life to your own ruin if your heart is not set on God. There has been many a man or a woman who has heard a call from God to be a missionary, a pastor, a deacon, or an elder, and who has ended their life in disaster. The similarity between Saul and David is striking. Both men received the same calling. Both men failed at times. But the difference between the two men could not have been greater. David was passionate about God. And Saul, well, he was not. And that is at the very heart of anyone who wants their lives to matter. The key is not whether you preach to thousands or lead a great movement or everyone speaks well of you. The key is whether your heart takes delight in your God, whether you find in Christ, and in Christ alone, your treasure chest of holy joy. That separates those who end well to those who end poorly. David will find this tested over and over again. For his road to the throne of Israel was not a straight line. His calling will involve suffering, and it will involve misery. But he will not let go of his God. Do you want your life to matter? then stop trying to do something great and instead find your satisfaction in the one who is truly great, the only great one who is the Lord your God. Heavenly Father, may it be said of us when we are done with our journey on earth, he or she was a man or a woman after the heart of God. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Dr. John, thanks for today's message. You know, I was thinking, for many of us, God's calling can become, well, sort of an obsession for us. We're sort of seeking after it, but what you're saying is that there's something more important. It's about the heart condition, the condition of our heart.
1: Yeah, I think that, well, I'm about to say something that some people might find shocking, but I think it's possible to find God's call in your life and end up in disaster. And we end up in disaster when we simply haven't guarded the issues of our heart and we haven't worked at the issues of faith and confidence in our God, obedience to his commands and learning to find our moment-by-moment joy in him. It doesn't matter what we do. If you miss those things, it will not end well for you. So I think we need to put the emphasis where the Bible puts the emphasis. Uh, David is known as a man after the heart of God, not first as a king. And and we should be known as that as well. So I think uh, you and I can take heart even when we may not be absolutely sure of what God wants us to do. We can be absolutely sure that God wants us to know him. Make that your priority.
0: Well, I don't know about you, but this familiar story that we have probably all read more than once has certainly come to life today. Not just in what we have learned about the context of David being chosen at that particular time in Israel, but what this story in fact teaches us about following God. No matter who we are, where we are from or what we are currently facing and what an inspiring look at this young man, David, who even from a young age showed the kind of character and faith that pleased God. Thanks for joining us today here on Back to the Bible, brought to you by Back to the Bible Broadcast Jamaica in partnership with listeners who give in support of this ministry. Our office is located at Shop Number 22, Hagley Park Plaza, Kingston 10. Our office hours are from Mondays through to Fridays, from 8:30 a.m. through to 4 p.m. We can be contacted via email at at backtothebibleministry@gmail.com. Our office number is 876-926 five seven six five and our cell and WhatsApp number is eight seven six three three seven six two nine five. Before we go, the reminder that our twenty twenty four calendar is available in Mandeville at Forever Young, located in the Manchester Shopping Center, and of course also from our office here in Hagripar Plaza for your contribution of $700 each. We pray that today's message has been a blessing in your walk with Christ. Please join us tomorrow as we continue in our series with a lesson on having confidence in God with Bible teacher John Newfeld. That's tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Jamaica, seeking to bring you closer to Jesus today than you were yesterday.